Good afternoon. This is the Alvin Galloway Show here on KRDP. On this segment of the show, the topic is recession. Who would be affected by a recession? And are we really ready to support them? From inflation to recession, what are the signs? How do we prepare and why is this happening? In this hyper economy, there has been numerous individuals talking about we are heading to a recession. Some economists agree and some don't. In this session, experts discuss how and why inflation can turn into a recession, what people can do to prepare for it, how strong the safety net is, and why is this happening at a time when corporations report record margins of profit. This is part of a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. Guest speakers include Chad Stone, Chief Economist, Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, Alex Goldworth, Director of Economic Family Security Policy, Washington Center for Equitable Growth, and Dr. Rakeen Maboud, Chief Economist and Managing Director of Policy and Research Groundwork Collaborative. Moderating the session is Ethnic Media Services Associate Editor, Journalist Pilar Romero. So stay tuned to the Alvin Galloway Show here on KRDP. I'm jazz artist Bretina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. on RadioPhoenix.org for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives?
Madison McFerrin. You know Madison McFerrin, the daughter of Bobby McFerrin. And the song is Try. Welcome to all our journalists. This is a very timely topic. Um, uh, we're all leaving the inflation. And we all saw today's job report, which I thought it was interesting. And, and we tried to analyze that today. Uh, our first speaker, unfortunately, was having and is still having some difficulties. So we're going to start in a different way. Um, I thought that maybe we should start with the last speaker, Dr. Rakim Abud, because um, she can talk directly about, uh, she can analyze direct, directly what's going on with the inflation and recession from her point of view. And then we can go to uh, Alex, who's going to talk about the safety net. Is that okay, Dr. Mabud? Yep, that works for me. All right, I will, go ahead. I'll just dive right in. Um, so first of all, thank you, Pilar and Sandy, for inviting me to speak today, especially alongside Chad and Alex, who I've worked with before and who are wonderful, as you will all find out very soon. Um, so I'm going to focus my comments today on three main points. First, the ways in which mega corporations are using the cover of inflation to jack up prices on consumers. Second, the long-running issues of concentration and consolidation that have riddled our supply chains, facilitating the profiteering that we're seeing today. And third, some of the key steps that we can take to address inflation, as well as hiding, highlighting some of the facts that steps that we should absolutely not be, be taking to address inflation. So there are a range of factors that have been driving inflation over the last year or so, including increased and shifting demand, as well as supply chain disruptions resulting in bottlenecks and supply shortages. And corporations across the economy are citing these challenges as the reasons for why their prices are going up. So while increased demand could certainly be um, 
you know, remember to slow down, Dr. Corporate profits. Yep. <laughs> the 70 year record high in corporate profit margins, despite in rising input costs that would normally eat into margins, shows us that mega corporations are taking advantage of this crisis to pad their profits by passing along more pricing than is justified by rising input costs alone. So in other words, very real price increases are giving firms cover to pad their profits and raise prices on consumers even more than their input costs would justify. So my organization, the Groundwork Collaborative, has combed through hundreds of earnings calls over the last year or so to understand why it is that profit margins are at a, at a record high. And in these calls, executives tell their investors about the last quarter's performance, as well as what investors can expect um, in, the, in the coming quarters. So over and over, in sector after sector, the message from corporate America is clear. CEOs are telling their investors that the current inflationary environment has created opportunities to extract more and more from consumers by raising prices. So I wanted to give some examples because you really don't have to take my word for it. Constellation Brands, um, it's a parent company of a popular beer brand, Modelo and Corona. On, on their Q3 earnings call in January, Constellation CFO said, quote, as you know, we've had a consumer set that skews a bit more Hispanic than some of our competitors. And in times of economic downturn, if you will, or weakness, they tend to get hit a little bit harder and recover a little bit slower. So we want to make sure that we're not leaving any pricing on the table. We want to take as much as we can, end quote. So in the exact same breath that they're acknowledging that their consumers are hurting, Constellation's executives are expressing excitement about exploitative and aggressive pricing to maximize their profit margins. Um, the other example I wanted to offer today is what, what I think of as one of the more egregious cases, um, which is Visa and MasterCard. This is a duopoly that controls over 70 percent of the, the market that they operate in, and they have no excuse, right? They can't blame supply chain disruptions for profiteering because credit card companies make their money on a fixed percentage fee off of each transaction. So if the, the value of a transaction is increasing because of inflation, they're automatically going to be earning more money. But of course, these companies aren't content to stop there. Both Visa and MasterCard reported this year that they'd be raising the fees themselves, right? So even that cut that they're taking off the top, they're just increasing that cut. So in short, Visa and MasterCard are using the power afforded through their market power, their control over this market, to raise fees on small businesses and consumers who have nowhere else to go. And again, don't have to take my word for it, there's also a lot of uh, quantitative data that backs this up, right? So there's analysis from the Economic Policy Institute that found that nearly 54% of recent inflation can be attributed to corporate profits. Um, which is a, in contrast to the 11.4% stake that corporate profits had in rising prices between 1979 to 2019. Um, and then the Roosevelt Institute published a new report recently that finds that corporate profits hit record highs in 2021 and corporations increased prices at the fastest rate in decades. It also detailed that the corporations on average charge consumers 72% more than their input costs compared to 56% pre-pandemic. So this is a, a widespread problem. It's something that we're seeing consistently across sectors and across different companies. Um, and in particular, it hits small businesses, right? Because 
Small businesses don't have price setting capability. They can't set prices the way big companies can. They have to sort of swallow those costs and pass them off to their consumers. Um, and often that results in them losing their market share because consumers abandon them for the Walmart down the street that can negotiate better prices or can be first in line for goods in the supply chain. So to go one layer deeper, you know, as I've been saying, these mega corporations are able to get away with aggressive and extractive pricing precisely because of the current inflationary environment. Um, and in part, that's because consumers, there's, there's information asymmetry. Um, consumers know less, consumers know that prices are going up and they know that maybe some of the input costs for a company are going up, but they don't necessarily know how much of that price increases in that they're experiencing at the store is because of you know, input costs rising and how much of that is corporations going in for another spoonful of sugar. But I think the question remains, why is it that corporations have so much power to profiteer in a moment of a crisis? And the answer really starts well before the pandemic, decades in fact. And it's that we spent 50 years allowing business executives and shareholders to really take control of our supply chains. They built a system that they called the just-in-time system that shaved off any sort of fail-safe, any sort of cost in order to maximize their short-term returns for their shareholders over you know, an effective system that actually delivers goods on time. So that means that when we have shocks like a pandemic or um, you know, a war or other sort of economic crises, we experience bottlenecks and shortages that drive up prices. And again, during moments of those crises, uh, big corporations can use their dominant market power to jack up prices beyond what we would expect given their input costs by hiding under the cover of inflation. So the, the way I often describe it is that every crime needs a means, motive, and opportunity. Um, motive is clear, right? The profit motive has always been there. Market power is really the means, right? The, the, the dominance that they hold over market gives them the means to, uh, to jack up prices and gives them that pricing power. And then crises like the cover of inflation um, and increasingly the cover of a, of a war um, is giving these companies an opportunity to actually, you know, uh, do this, do, lay out this tactic. And so I wanted to offer one example that I think is really uh, crystal clear, which is that the ocean shipping industry is a really, really good example of how endemic consolidation and concentration has made our economy really ripe for profiteering. So 95% of the East-West trade routes are controlled by three alliances, 2M, Ocean Alliance, and THE Alliance. Um, this is not a new phenomenon. This is, you know, this con concentration of this market is because of decades of deregulation, especially during the 1980s and 1990s, uh, which allowed for this oligopoly of ocean carriers to build power and to consolidate. And this pattern of consolidation and deregulation, both in the shipping industry, but also more broadly, has eliminated resiliency and fail-safes in our supply chain and increased, importantly, our reliance on precarious labor. Because one of those costs that these companies are always trying to cut um, are, are labor costs, right? And so they make these jobs ever more precarious. They pay them ever less. Um, you know, they break apart the relationship between employers and employees and make them independent contractors. So in other words, these policy choices have allowed corporations to keep costs really low for themselves and reap profits without the, any risk of being undercut by competition at the expense of stability and reliability for consumers and safety and quality jobs for workers. And so just to put a finer point on it, um, in Q1 of 2022, the global shipping oligopoly earned a record-breaking uh, $59.3 billion in profits. They expect to earn four times that in the coming year. 
The world's largest carrier um, recently enjoyed its largest profits in 117 years. Um, and these companies raised um, spot rates for freight shipping from the US to Asia, so export rates, by over a hundred, uh, excuse me, over a thousand percent over the same period. So this is a real problem and it really shows how endemic concentration um, has facilitated this profiteering um, and allowed these companies to take advantage of a crisis. So I'm just gonna talk for a little bit longer and then I'll stop, I'm looking forward to questions. Um, so now that we've dug into what has is causing price hikes, I wanted to talk a little bit about what is not causing price hikes, right? Um, so the two often that you hear in the news are worker wages and investments in our economy, like the ARP, the American Reco uh, Rescue Plan. Um, so just some, some basic research shows us that those two things are not a factor in what is driving inflation right now. Um, a recent analysis by Economic Policy Institute found that less than 8% of inflation could be attributed to rising labor costs. And in fact, even in today's jobs report, we saw that wage growth is starting to decelerate, which is bad news for workers, to be clear. Um, we, we want workers who have a really low baseline of wages to experience higher wages. Unfortunately, rising wage growth does give fuel to the fire that somehow the Fed needs to take care of this, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, and, you know, the, on the other hand, uh, Mark Zandi, who's the chief economist of the ratings agency Moody's, found that government spending, like the American Rescue Plan, accounts for 0.1% um, of the 8.6% of inflation we're seeing. So absolutely minuscule. So some economists have said that we need to aggressively raise interest rates, crush wage growth, and raise the unemployment rate in order to tamp down inflation. But this remedy for inflation would be worse than the disease itself. And I'm sure Chad is going to get into this in his comments as well. Um, artificially pushing the economy into recession by aggressively raising interest rates would be catastrophic for Black workers and other marginalized workers who face sky-high unemployment rates, even when the headline numbers are relatively strong. Even in the best of situations, Black workers consistently have doubled the unemployment rate of white workers. So choosing to condemn millions of workers to crisis-level unemployment rates is a very obviously a horrific and harmful policy choice that will weaken our economy and backtrack on the important gains workers and families have experienced in this recovery. You know, turning to the Fed to solve all of our inflation problems also reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of why we have rising prices in the first place. And, you know, as I've talked about today, the issue is not high demand. In fact, we should have a system that is able to be responsive to um, ebbs and flows of de demand, right? Instead, our issue is that we have broken supply chains, unbridled corporate power, and pandemic profiteering. So constraining demand by making people poorer, which is exactly what um, aggressive interest rate hikes would do, is deeply flawed and dangerous to the economic well-being of marginalized workers in particular. So the good news is that there are a lot of tools in our toolbox that we can use to address these power dynamics and to take on um, the issues that I've talked about today. Um, you know, just a couple here, you know, Congress could reinstate a historic tax on excess profits to discourage profiteering by companies across sectors and incentivize them to increase productivity by actually making investments in the firm. Um, regulators could um, enforce laws on the books to reduce illegal activities like price fixing and collusion. Um, that could in include a federal price gouging standard like one that exists in, in three quarters of U.S. states. Um, the Department of Justice and the FTC, a Federal Trade Commission, um, should be empowered to aggressively crack, crack down on monopoly power, um, and state attorneys general also have a lot of power here. Um, and then the last, last thing I'll say is, you know, 
investments are critical. Um, yes, we must invest in our supply chain. We should build a system that actually works. But we care about inflation because we care about people's lives, right? We care about people's ability to live a good life. Um, and so making investments that make life easier for people in healthcare, in housing, in, in a care infrastructure, in climate, um, you know, enacting policies that strengthen labor standards and protection, all of those are an important role in building an economy that allows people to live a good life. Um, and that has to be seen as part of this toolbox and toolkit that we have. Um, because ultimately right now, the inflation we're facing is a problem with deep roots and there's no surface level solution that's gonna get rid of it. Um, and so I'll, I'll stop there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to your questions and um, Alex and Chad's comments. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Maboud. This is Althea Long, and you're listening to The Alvin Galloway Show. Stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up. The Alvin Galloway Show, Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. for conversation, music, and culture. And tune in to The Althea Long Show. It's a music mind walk every Sunday at noon to 2 p.m. One way listeners like you can support KRDP is by becoming one of our sustaining donors. Your financial gift supports the diverse programming you hear on KRDP. It also provides opportunities for youth, interns, and members of the Valley community to learn radio broadcasting and for coverage of local arts, culture, and politics. And don't forget, your financial contribution is tax-deductible. For more information or to sign up to become a KRDP sustaining donor, call 602-254-6636 or visit our website. Listen, the number two, krdp.com and click on the donate button on the top menu. We thank you for your generous support of KRDP. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. So we get that inflation is a problem for people. We also get that what the government or what the Fed has been doing, raising interest rates, could be a problem for the economy, because if they go too far, uh, it can create a recession. So we'll, we'll have Chad explain all of that later. But what can the government do? I mean, in other countries, you have price controls, which is a no-no for, for the U.S. We've, I don't think we've ever had that. But we had President Biden go on Twitter uh, a few days ago and call, directly call on gas companies to lower prices because he said that the way they, they are increasing prices does not, is not um, commensurate with the increase in production costs, just what you just said. What should the president do? Or, I mean, and, and is this any effective? There's any effect to President Biden calling on companies to lower prices like this without forcing them? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, late last fall, we saw President Biden call out the meatpacking industry um, and, and lifted up how profiteering was happening in the meatpacking industry. 
And subsequently, we did see meat prices start to come down, right? So there is power in the bully pulpit. I don't, I think that is, again, one tool in a toolbox with many tools in it. Um, I don't think we can rely on just the bully pulpit to bring down prices, but I do think it's important um, for the administration to really be clear about what the root causes of today's price hikes are, because that analysis ultimately informs what policy tools we use to address that inflation, right? And to your point, if if we're if we're interpreting this as excess demand, right, which is the traditional, very like neoclassical understanding of where inflation comes from, um, then we end up relying on the Fed, which has an extremely blunt tool um, to address a problem that it's not actually going to address. So, to your point, I think you know the you know there's there's lots of things the president can do. There's certainly lots of things that Congress can do. And um, empowering regulators and enforcers is another critical um, body of folks who can really take this issue on. Uh, when I was researching for this for this panel, I was surprised to see that a lot of the stories in the media that talked about the inflation and potential potential recession did not mention corporate profits. And I saw another separate story talking about how the biggest 500 companies in the United States have posted. It, great profits last year and, and continue uh, having great profits. Why do you think there's this disconnect about uh, between mainstream media and this topic? Why isn't mainstream media putting the, the dots together on this issue? Why do we have to hear someone from your organization talk in the program of John Stewart and not on CNN or MSNBC? I mean, I, I, I'm really frustrated about this. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the good news is I do think that there, this message has started to get out there. My colleague Lindsay Owens was on. I mean, John Stewart is a huge platform, you know, so the, this story is getting out there. But I think to your point, um, you know, at Groundwork, we often say we are the economy. And that is the idea that it's not the stock market. It's not the CEOs. It's, it's not the mythical job creators who are the economy. It's us when we do well. The economy does well when we it's the economy is what we create and what we demand. And I think, you know, a, a big undercurrent in the reporting about the economy prioritizes capital, prioritizes CEOs in the stock market over that real experience of everyday people living in this country. And so um, a lot of what we do at Groundwork is really trying to lift up um, the, the ways that our economy is really comprised of all of us. And I think this is one way where we can highlight the bad actors who are you know, driving up prices at the expense of consumers and at the expense of workers. Thank you so much. Um, stay around please for a little bit. Uh, we're gonna go to um, Chad Stone, uh, Chief Economist of the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. And you were supposed to be the first speaker. I'm sorry you couldn't be. Um, so let's go back to the way we hope to start this panel. And it is to explain why do we have a threat of a recession if we're supposed to be in a recovery? What is going on? So, yeah, I'm, I've been tasked uh, uh, with um, predicting the future <laughs> to talk about what is a recession. That's not, that's not predicting the future, but that's complicated in its own way. Are we in one or is one imminent? That's um, probably us predicting the future. And, uh, and uh, the, let's see, what was the third? Oh, uh, or is one imminent? Um, and so let's 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 start with the, the are we in a recession? I, there are very few people who think that we're currently in a recession, um, even though there's there's some some hints that 
at some point we may be defined to be in moment. I don't think that's true. Um, recession um, in, in popular mind, well, in the popular mind, for humans, a recession is an economy that's not performing the way you would like it to, and uh, that that you just you you feel bad about it. Um, for formally, uh, or rather, um, journalistically, uh, recession gets defined as two quarters of negative growth in GDP, which is not the official definition of uh, of a recession either. It's and it's it doesn't always qualify as a de definition of recession. So there's this group of people at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a small group of economists who have for years have been the acknowledged arbiters of what a recession is and what a recovery is. And they define a recession as a decline in economic activity spread across the economy that lasts more than a few months. Um, and it's something that they don't reach a decision about when that happened until long after the recession is over, because they, 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 look, at, they look at a bunch of data. So they're not going to be any help um, telling us whether we're in a recession or not uh, coming up. Um, and and even, 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 they, even their definition doesn't really work that well, because the last recession we had uh, lasted only two months. That was April and May of um, 20, 20, uh, 2020. Um, now, did, did the... Did, Excess unemployment lasts much longer than that. Yes, it did, but the but the de definition of the recession formally is a decline in economic activity. So you go from from a peak of activity to the trough, and everything after the trough is the expansion, the recovery that you're talking about. The first few steps of it are the recovery, and we've we've had a good long strong recovery, aided substantially by sub the government measures that have been taken including the American Rescue Plan, which is getting blamed uh, for, the, um, for, for, the, for, the, for the for the uh, for inflation uh, coming up in some quarters. Um, it's it's more more centrist economists would say that that it's part of the story, um, but that the supply chains are another important part of the story. And that this is this is a, an economy that's the pandemic economy is much is is its own thing. It's not like any recessions we've we've seen in the past. It's it's not a simple excess aggregate demand inflation where the economy is running too hot, and and an artful Fed, if there ever is or was one, can can slow the growth of the economy to, but not throw the economy into recession. Um, but um, we also have these supply chain uh, these supply shocks like oil price shocks. When I, when I was in graduate school, we had the first oil price shock. No, I, no my first year out of graduate school, we had the 1973-74 oil price shocks. So it was the first time economists had to confront supply shocks and how they're different uh, in, in, in many ways and how, and how the Fed doesn't have that much influence over supply shocks. But, but we, have, we have supply and demand bumping up against each other where supply is artificially restricted and demand... Um, you don't, you don't want to be cutting way back on demand because that does throw you into a bad recession. And um, as, as Rakeen said, um, it's, really, it's really hard on vulnerable groups when, when you have a recession. Um, so today's jobs report showed that um, the unemployment rate is still at 3.6% overall, which is, um, a tenth, which is two tenths of a percent higher than, than the highest 
way all the way back to uh, 1999 or uh, 1999. Um, but and and it also shows that the black unemployment rate has come down to below where it was at the start of the pandemic recession in February of 2020. But it's at 6.8%, which is which is low by historical standards for the black unemployment rate, but is but is incredibly high relative to the white unemployment rate. And, and the uh, Hispanic or Latino unemployment rate is 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 in between, but also elevated. So there's a there's a, the people people who get hurt if if you if you focus exclusively on getting inflation down as quick as you can and slam on the brakes and go into a recession, get really hurt. And you certainly don't want to do that. Um, so. Uh, the, the, the Fed, Trump Powell's been pretty good, but he, but he, uh, up, up until, up until recently, about about really, really emphasizing that trying to get the unemployment rate as low as it can go, and trying to to get more people into the labor force and more people working. Um, but uh, with with the inflation that that came came from supply shocks, um, at the same time we were getting some de demand increase from the American Rescue Plan, but. Let me, let me, as an aside, say the American Rescue Plan did a lot of good. And if the alternative was not to have it, then maybe we would have had a little less inflation, but we would have had a lot more hardship and we would have had inflation anyway from the supply shock side, not necessarily as much maybe, but um, to, so it's, 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 a, it's a mistake. It's a mistake to act as though you could have just not had the rescue plan and everything would be great. The economy was actually um, had slowed in late 2020. Um, job creation had slowed, um, and we actually had negative um, month of, of job growth in December 2020. But the uh, the end of the year package of relief measures in 2020 and the American Rescue Plan um, gave gave juice to the recovery, and and we've had we've had a long string string of, um, of positive job numbers and uh, substantial reductions in in hardship. Uh, so I'm gonna. Get get a little. Uh, I got I got a little uh, off off topic on just what is a recession and is one close. Um, the the folks the folks that that the forecasters that I pay attention to um, are raising the probability of a recession because what the Fed is trying to do is really thread a needle that's very hard to do, and 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 there's lots of downside risks from too much tightening. That are probably stronger than than uh, than not tightening enough fast enough. Um, there's a there's a debate about what happens with the inflation expectations in the future, um, and and that that complicates the analysis. But um, so the the risk of the risk of a recession is heightened because of the inflation that we're fighting, and I am skeptical that we have a lot of good policies. For addressing inflation, um, I it short run in the short run, um, and and it's a short run problem right now. We need to get inflation. We need to make it look like inflation is coming down, so that so that people believe that policy is working. Um, um, there's downside risks for sure, um, but um, we're not in a recession yet. Okay. The the current forecast by people I trust. Um, forecast. The current guesstimate by people I trust suggests that um, if an inflation comes, it'll be relatively shallow. Still, we have the, the, um, the, the, the demographic 
groups that get hurt even by a short, shallow recession. And so I think, I think we should think about as policymakers um, have, having um, really targeted um, um, safety net programs, relief programs that can help the most vulnerable folks when, a, when, when, a, when if a recession comes. We don't have those in place now. We're, we're, we're scrambling to get any kind of any kind of additional policy in. Um, maybe maybe I should just um, stop there. Um, and, and answer some questions. questions. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chad. Um, okay. We have Orhan. Orhan, are you there? Uh, you had a, you had several good questions. Um, can you identify yourself, your news organization, and ask at least one of your questions to Chad? Hey, yeah, hi. Yes, this is Orhan hi. from the Zaman America. So, um, I mean, supply chain is getting the normal as before, uh, the, before the COVID-19 pandemic. So, but still all prices are high. So we were expecting, I mean, uh, there is some supply chain through the China, but everything, it seems normal until, I mean, as far as we know, but the, 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 the I mean, the price is still high. Do you think this high price is going down by itself? This is the first question. And, uh, do you think the Fed didn't act on time to control the inflation? Uh, do you think they read what's going on in the future and how they need to act? Uh, I mean, did they act on time or they, uh, I'm not sure. So there is some questions on it. And uh, last question. So is there any way to control corporate price? So everyone is trying to get the revenue and getting more revenue. So how the government can control any price, even the gasoline, I mean, the Biden told the gas companies to reduce the, <laughs> the, the price. So, but I don't think it doesn't work that way. So uh, do you expect any uh, reaction from the government to make everything is under control? Not everything, uh, at least the part of the high price. Um, okay, so- on your first question, um, the, the supply chain has not completely eased, uh, especially when you take into account um, the impact of the of the Russian invasion on on, on critical prices. Um, so we still do have um, supply constraints. Um, your 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 third was: Is there anything to be done about corporate profits? Um, I think there's no question that over the last um, few decades, we've seen um, an incredible um, concentration of corporate power, uh, which is a different thing from saying that there, that I that I see easy, see straightforward policies that we can take right now that would have a, an impact right now on uh, the, uh, the um, inflation uh, reflected in um, the, the, the windfall profits some windfall profits, some um, opportunistic uh, price increases that corporations have, en have engaged in. But in any case, um, it's, hard, it's hard to affect um, in the short run with, with traditional um, antitrust tools. Um, and I forgot what your middle question was. I'm sorry. It's all right. We need to move on. Yeah. Um, so, Sunita, ask your question, please. Um, Chad, good to see you again. <laughs> uh -huh. 
And so I wanted to ask you, um, you've spoken at previous briefings about the impact of the gig economy. And I wonder, is the uh, does jobs report reflect the number of people that are in the gig economy? And more importantly, the informal economy that's not defined by the gig economy? Yeah, it's, 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 com- it's, uh, I'll see if I get this right. It's complicated on, so there's, there's two aspects to the jobs report. One is asking employers, how many people do you have on your payrolls? And because of complications with the way gig workers are treated, in fact, perhaps illegalities in the way gig, gig workers are treated, um, the, they, they're not likely to be counted on the, on the, in the payroll employment statistics. The household data ask, um, people um who how many people in your household have a job and if you have a gig job you would you would most likely say you report it so so they would be they would be in the the um the household employment statistics and and there's a there's a disconnect between the, the household data and the um, and the payroll data, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tries to, to, to measure, tries to have a uh, supplemental measure that looks at them on a, on a comparable basis, but that would involve, to, to make the household comparable to the payroll, you'd have to throw out the gig workers. So that doesn't help either. This is the Alvin Galloway Show on KRDP, and we'll be back. Programming on KRDP is financially supported by Westside Blues and Jazz. Located at the northeast corner of 59th Avenue and Bell Road in Glendale. Performers include the one and only Big Pete Pearson, Beth Lederman, the Sugar Thieves, and the legendary Charles Lewis. Westsideblues.com, also on Facebook, hashtag. West Side Jazz and Blues.
That's Mo Better Blues. Branford Marcellus Quartet featuring Terrence Blanchard. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. So uh, we welcome now Alex Coolworth. She's Director of Family Economic Security Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. My name is Alex Goldworth. I work at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, and I appreciate you having me here to talk to you about what will happen if a recession does indeed hit. So I'm gonna cover in my remarks who will be most affected and what supports will be available to them, really building on Rakeen uh, and Chad's comments. So the bottom line here is that recessions harm members of disadvantaged demographic groups the most. Each recession is slightly different from all the other recessions that precede it. And like Chad mentioned, the COVID recession was very different from the Great Recession, the recessions of the 90s and 80s. Um, The COVID recession was the first to especially impact the service sector and to especially impact women. But generally, though, across recessions, we see a pattern where workers of color low educated and low income workers are the first to experience job and income loss and really bear the brunt. So um, this picture kind of illustrates this in the context of the COVID recession. The blue bars in the chart show that during the COVID recession, adults and households with the lowest incomes were the most likely to report the loss of money from employment. The orange bars show that Latino, Black, and Asian American workers will all more likely to report this loss of employment income than white workers. And then if we turn to the purple bars, we can see that workers with bachelor's degrees, the most advantaged workers in the labor market, are the least likely to experience this loss of employment income, right? And this pattern holds across recessions. People who are members of other disadvantaged demographic groups are also likely to bear the brunt of the crisis. For example, you can see here that during the COVID recession, U.S. workers born in other countries were more likely to lose jobs than those born in the United States. We also saw a similar pattern during the Great Recession, though interestingly, foreign-born workers recovered more quickly than workers born in the United States during the Great Recession. Um, And then, you know, in the past, we haven't collected great data on um, workers by sexual orientation, gender identity, Um, but we've started doing that. So we can see that across age groups during the COVID recession, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer workers experienced higher rates of job loss than workers that didn't identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Okay, so... um, Yeah, we can see um, that there are these problems where the recession is most impacting the most vulnerable workers. What can we do for those workers who are experiencing job loss and having difficulty making ends meet during recessions? Well, unfortunately, in the United States, the income support system that we have in place is weak. So it is composed of programs like Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which is the cash welfare program that serves families with kids, a Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, which is formerly known as food stamps, programs that serve people with disabilities like Social Security Disability Insurance and Supplemental Security Income, housing and childcare subsidies, which are very limited in their number and their availability, Social Security Retirement Benefits, and unemployment insurance. 
um, if you take a look at kind of the full system that's formed by these individual programs, you'll see that many people who are affected by recessions are going to be left behind by these programs. So many or all of them are only available to specific subpopulations, like people with disabilities, older adults, or families with kids. They tend to have onerous eligibility criteria, really hard to apply for and stay eligible for, and are generally not available to big groups of people like undocumented people and other groups of immigrants. They're burdensome to apply for. Um, many of them can only be used to purchase specific items. And in general, they provide too little money. So unemployment insurance is the main program that's designed to kick in during a recession to help workers that suffer job and income losses, and also really importantly, to stabilize the macro economy. So I'm going to turn to that program in depth next. But first, I just really quickly wanted to mention excluded worker funds. So like I mentioned, undocumented workers, other groups of immigrants are rarely eligible for these federally provided benefits. So during the COVID pandemic, some states like New York, California, New Mexico, and Oregon created excluded worker funds that would bring income supports to these workers and other people who didn't qualify for federal assistance. So this is a really important place, I think, to see reporting and to, to shine a light on the ways that states are kind of filling holes in the federal system. Okay, so let's turn to unemployment insurance. Um, the, so kind of the bottom line here is that the unemployment insurance system that we have right now is not ready for the next crisis. So why is this? I think it's really important to go to the root of the problem. And that is that the unemployment insurance system is starved for resources. So um, this is a picture of the federal unemployment insurance tax base. So that's the proportion of a worker's wages that are taxed to fund unemployment insurance, right? So you may make $130,000 thousand dollars a year, but the government will only take thirty thousand dollars and tax that. That pool of your earnings over the year that's taxed is called the taxable wage base, and it's the money that we can draw from to fund these programs. So over time, the unemployment insurance tax base has eroded, meaning that we're collecting taxes on a smaller and smaller pool of earnings. Um, so here we've got two lines to kind of illustrate this point. The blue line shows the real value of the Social Security taxable wage base. And you can see in the picture that before 1949, these two programs, their, their wage bases matched. Um, but um, right, the UI taxable wage base um, in 1930, when the program started, was $3,000, which is equivalent to $55,020. But the amount only can be raised by law. And in fact, we've only increased it three times over the past 80 years. And so its value has eroded by nearly 800%. Um, in contrast, if you look at that taxable wage base for Social Security benefits, it was indexed to inflation in 1977 and it's gone up over time. So we're starving the system of resources. I want to make it clear that the federal unemployment insurance taxable wage base isn't financing benefits, it's financing administration, and the states have their own taxable wage bases to finance benefits, but many of these states tie their taxable wage bases to the federal ones, so we could draw a similar picture for probably most of the states that you guys are located in. The bottom line, though, in all this detail is just that we don't have enough money to administer and pay for benefits. And so states are going to make benefits hard to access or they're going to pay stingy amounts or both. So this chart is showing right states restricting access to the program, either through changing eligibility criteria or making the program hard to access. The chart's blue line shows the unemployment insurance recipiency rate. 
the percentage of unemployed people who receive unemployment benefits. This rate has always been fairly low in the modern era, right? It was around 40% at its post-1977 peak. And in recent years, it's fallen to concerning levels, right? In 2014, fewer than one in four unemployed workers received unemployment insurance. That's the point at the very end of the series. In 2019, in Mississippi, for example, fewer than one in 10 workers received unemployment insurance. And this recipiency rate, I'm sorry that the chart doesn't go to the end, but it spiked big in the COVID recession. But today we're back to rates in the 20s. And unemployment insurance can't stabilize the macro economy and it can't support workers if workers who lose jobs through no fault of their own aren't accessing the program. It's also true that when benefits are low, that also stops them from filling, fulfilling their intended function. So unemployment benefits levels are low. On average, they replace only 40% of a worker's wages. Imagine trying to pay your rent, put food on the table if you only had 40% of your earnings. And states have also found clever ways to restrict the amount of money flowing to unemployed workers. So thank you, Chad, for this chart, which is from your organization. Um, prior to the Great Recession, all states were providing a maximum duration of at least 26 weeks, so about six months of benefits to workers. Following the Great Recession, these lightly shaded states in the picture, like Idaho, Missouri, North Carolina, and Florida, cut benefits to as few as 12 weeks. And then this year, Kentucky, Oklahoma, and Iowa all followed suit. So what's happening here is that after a recession, we would expect that we would see how important unemployment insurance was for stabilizing the economy and helping families, and that we would want to invest more in this program. But instead, states, because they're under, the program is underfunded, they see that they've spent a lot of money on the program, and then they cut benefits back, making us more vulnerable and in a less good position for the next recession. Okay, so it's also really important to note that while workers who are members of disadvantaged demographic groups are the most likely to feel the pain of a recession, like we've talked about, they're also the least likely to apply for and to access unemployment insurance. So the chart show, this chart shows the rates of UI benefit receipt among unemployed US workers in 2019. If you sum together the blue and the orange bars, you'll see the percentage of workers who apply for benefits. And then the blue bars alone are representing those who are actually receiving the benefits. You can see in the chart that recipiency rates are quite low for workers with less than a high school diploma that furthest left bars and also for black and Hispanic workers. So our system of income supports and our unemployment insurance system in particular is broken. In general, we rely on Band-Aid solutions and I'm gonna explain in a little bit why we can't keep counting on those. So for example, during the great recession, Congress increased the UI benefit duration in these one-off extensions. And then during the COVID recession, like this chart is so busy with all the one-off things that we did, Congress made radical one-time changes to the system of income supports. It increased unemployment insurance amount and duration, expanded its eligibility criteria. It offered economic impact payments. It enhanced the child tax credit. The political will to make these changes was unique, and it was spurred by an unprecedented health crisis. 
But when the political will shifted and the provisions expired, families suffered, right? When public supports fail, when these one-off extensions end, um, disadvantaged families are going to have few options to make ends meet. So in this last chart, I want you to pay attention to that top blue, dark blue line. It's showing households who reported using credit cards and loans to make ends meet, which is a dangerous strategy for family economic security. You can see that as the temporary pandemic programs ended, families increasingly relied on this dangerous strategy, likely because they had no other options. So there's no guarantee that Congress is going to implement Band-Aid solutions if another recession hits and our permanent system of income supports is not up to the task. We're not prepared for the next crisis and it's families that are going to feel the pain, which will ultimately undermine our ability to recover from the next recession. So this isn't to say that there are not policy solutions, right? We should improve unemployment insurance funding, strengthen the safety net permanently, and develop programs that trigger on automatically when economic conditions worsen. Um, and that way we can protect families and ameliorate recessions. And I think to do this, we need to really like make the case in the public consciousness. Thank you. Thank you, Alex, for that a very thorough explanation of the safety net. Um, what is... What is the role of wages here? Because often when corporations raise prices, they also blame wage, wage increases, right? Uh, that are prescribed. Um, how are wages at the moment? If anyone else wants to jump in as well, um, what is your take on that, Alex? So increases in wages and like, can they basically step in for the safety net? Yeah. Yeah, no, increase that we're we're seeing increases in wages because there's not enough workers. There's like two workers per um two jobs per per worker available. So um there are some increases in wages, but then they are passed down as if more inflation. So uh, what is the problem here? Yeah. Well, I think I'll defer to um to the two economists on the call, Rakeen and Chad, if you guys want to take that one. I mean, I, as I mentioned in my remarks, you know, there's a lot of analysis that shows that wages and rising worker wages are not the reason that um, we're seeing higher prices right now. Um, there is really good analysis from Josh Bivens at EPI that shows that wages comprise about uh, 8% of the recent price hikes. And that's relative to, I, I think he put it at almost like over 50%, 54% um, of current inflation is being driven by corporate profits. That's with data that's slightly out of date, but I, it, I imagine that it's largely still the same today. Um, I think the other thing to note here is that worker wages in the US are, are, are just rock bottom and they have been for decades, right? There have been attacks on worker wages, on job quality, on the ability to access unions um, for decades. And so when the fact that we're seeing a slight increase in worker wages, especially for those who have the lowest incomes in a moment of crisis is actually a real testament to um, the policies that we put in place to support workers and, um, and, and you know, the, the economic environment that we've created. But that's not a, I mean, we're already seeing wage growth starting to slow. Um, and, um, you know, that is not a reason for us to be I guess what I'm trying to hold is a duality, right? That increasing worker wages is a really good thing for those workers, especially given how low that starting point is. And unfortunately, we are living in a political environment where rising worker wages adds fuel to the fire for those calling for 
functionally, you know, really aggressive interest rate hikes, which have a big risk of being tipping us into a recession. So, um, you know, I'll turn it over to Chad now, but I think, you know, that that's how I think about wages in this. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I think the, I think the general proposition that, that wages are not, um, not driving inflation to a, to a, to a high degree, um, is, is, is correct. Um, unfortunately, uh, the, the most recent quarter of data is a little unkind to Josh's um, hypothesis. Corporate profits have been going down and, and the labor share has been going up, but it's still, uh, it, it's still the argument is correct that, that, that wages are not the, um, not, not the primary driver. And, and the good, the good thing um, about a good, a good thing, which, which maybe goes the other way if, if you're somebody who, who, who doesn't like workers and, and wants to blame them, is that workers at the bottom, um, at least in industries, looking, looking at um, a disaggregation of the um, uh, production and non-management non jobs in a, in a breakdown of 70-some industries in the, in the, uh, business, in the uh, survey of employers, finds that, uh, I found that, that there's uh, the actual wage gains over the last 12 months uh, in, that are in excess of inflation and some uh, which is which is a which is a good thing for equity um, but it's a but it's it's it, it it cuts the other way if if you're trying to argue that wages don't have anything to do with but but i should say that there's not a lot of that's not a lot of people that are that, i mean it's a substantial number of people but it's not okay. that's not what's driving um, inflation got it got it thank you chad yeah i mean i think I guess I want to be real with you. Like I felt like we had a really exciting policy window and I was so excited about changes that were on the horizon to really strengthen the safety net. And it is devastating that we didn't see that action directly following the COVID crisis when there was more political will. Um, but I don't think that means that we should ever stop trying and you never know what is going to be happen. There's bipartisan compromises that are being discussed right now. Um, the midterms have not yet happened. Um, and I think that this is something, especially as we're talking more about the possibility of a recession, that people are waking up a little bit more to see um, the problems that we have in our safety net. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say is going back to those excluded worker funds, you know, state governments are really powerful tools and there's action that we can take that's not just at the federal level to protect people. I wanted to double click on Alex's point. I mean, I think the stakes are just too high for us to, to sort of see, you know, any sort of reforms or strengthening of the social safety net as a foregone conclusion. I mean, we have to keep fighting for them. One thing that hasn't come up in this conversation, but I think I just wanted to name is it's not just in the period of recession that um, folks are hurt, right? And, and particularly folks who have been historically left out of progress. There, there's significant research from the Great Recession showing that the effects that people face of a spell of unemployment or you know, a job loss has significant scarring effects for, for years um, in the future. So, um, you know, this is a strengthening our safety net. We can't we can't just like let that go and um, the stakes are just too high um, for for people's well-being and as a result, our economy's well-being. Thank you so much. We we only have a couple of minutes, but I want to ask each of our panelists to tell us, reporters, what do you think we should concentrate on as we cover this issue? What what the what would the focus be that that we are doing? Chad, 
Okay. Um, I think what, what we've been talking about at the, at the end, which is, which is the importance of, of being, I mean, leave aside the political constraints, the, important, the importance of, of being ready and recognizing that even if it's a mild recession, there are people that get hurt badly. And we pe people have been touting the low um, unemployment insurance claims numbers over the last um, several months as, as, as an indication of a good economy. It may also be an indication of a really bad unemployment insurance system that's leaving out a lot of people that should be getting unemployment insurance. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Alex? What should yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one thing I would love to see more stories about, um, especially from folks who are, you know, based in a specific state, is what is happening to the unemployment insurance system in your state. So really, you know, shining a light on what's going on in Kentucky and Oklahoma and Iowa, um, thinking about you know, right after um, the pandemic, governors in many states walked away from free federal money for unemployment insurance. Like, what was the pain that people were feeling and kind of use those stories to make the case for um, what we need to do going forward? Same folks that walked away from an expansion of Medicaid, right? Um, okay, and then finally, Rakeem. Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a big question to end, end on. I mean, I think what I the reason I do this work is because, you know, I think people when we talk about the economy, we often talk about it like it's the weather or inflation's like the weather. It just happens to us, right? But that's not true. People have agency and people fundamentally make up the economy. And I think the, to the extent that um, folks like you who are on the ground speaking to um, your communities can actually lift up those stories as a reflection of what how our economy is doing, that is just fundamentally important for, um, for all of us, right? For the work that I do, for the work that we're all trying to do in, in understanding what's actually happening in our economy. Um, because too often it's just, it's come, the, the stories that we get about the economy are from Wall Street and business leaders and CEOs, and they're not the ones who are, you know, actually make up the system, it's all of us. So that's, that's sort of my, that's how I would approach that question. You have been listening to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. We thank Ethnic Media Services that continues to bring us pertinent information that affects our lives every day. This is the Alvin Galloway Show. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and also to check out our podcast. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast shows. Send me a message and let me know how you and your family or you as an individual are adapting to these inflationary times. I'm interested to find out how you are coping and meeting the challenge. And as I always say, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. We'll see you next week. Be blessed. Thank you for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show podcast. We hope you like our show. And if you do, we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily. No donation is too small.
We thank you again, and we'll see you on the next show.